Hello and welcome to the Pain Cave. My name is Jay Friedman. I am your host and I am very excited to be joined today by possibly the only PhD in nutritional sciences who has also been on the cover of Ultra Running Magazine. He is a finisher of over 50 ultra marathons with multiple top 10s at huge races across the country, including Kettle Moraine, Oil Creek, Silver Rush 50, Javelina, Pinhoti, and wins at such varied races as Yankee Springs 50K, Collegiate Peaks 50 Mile, and the Woodstock 100. He is also, as I mentioned, a PhD in nutritional sciences, who we're going to try to get to learn a little bit more about the nutrition behind what fuels athletes in general and ultra marathoners in particular and get into some interesting scientific stuff today with a guest that we're very excited about so please join me in welcoming jonathan clinthorne to the show jonathan welcome to the pain cave thank you for having me i'm really excited to be here and uh hopefully share some some interesting knowledge yeah, so, you know, like I was saying a little bit before we came online, we are nominally at least a show about the science of ultra running, and I think this will be an interesting uh, discussion for a lot of us. Before we get kind of diving deep into the scientific stuff, I want to talk a little bit about your background. You know, it was, it was interesting. We, we got set up on this show, I guess, a little bit by our mutual friend and colleague, Ryan Kroll from, from Colorado. And he told me just a, a little bit about you, uh, but I, I hadn't really gotten the whole story until I dove a little deeper in li- online uh, into your history. And uh, you've got a, a really cool backstory that I wanted to talk about. Tell us a little bit about how you got into running and uh, nutrition and everything else that goes along with that. Oh, gosh. Okay, so we go, we'll go all the way back. Well, we can't um, go. We can't go all the way. You, you're not allowed to say all the way back because you're only like 33 years old. So <laughs> that's, I'm going to disallow that right away. All the way back for you is like five minutes ago. But go on. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it, it started like a lot of uh, college students' stories start. As I, I played varsity sports in high school, got to college and stopped playing sports, but kept eating like I was playing sports. And <laughs> uh, yeah, and, what, and, what did you play? You know, uh, I played lacrosse and I swam competitively for a very long time. Ah, that's interesting so big, because big calorie sports. Yeah, you know, yeah, for sure. Practice was four hours a day, twice a day. I have to say, so, I feel like I feel like folks with a swim background when they were younger have such a huge advantage on just in in terms of endurance sports. Growing up, just building that aerobic capacity when you're younger—that's such a huge deal, and especially for especially if you're going to do triathlons or swimming later on because of just all that repetition time in the pool. And I feel like so much of swimming is, is just a mix of aerobic capacity and just, just form and just being oh, comfortable yeah. in the water. So that, that's, that's an unfair advantage for a lot of folks, I feel like, with a swim <laughs> background. Sorry, I'm already yeah, interrupting. It, Go it, on. It's absolutely true. But all that swimming made me so scared of running. So uh, <laughs> most of my friends would agree you couldn't pay me to run half a mile. And usually uh, during lacrosse season, I would be one of the last guys on our, our three mile run to finish. But, uh, you know, I'd always, I'd always get it done somehow coming straight out of the pool and then just jumping into running for lacrosse. Um, I got to college and I actually lived with a a MSU football player and I ate a lot like he did, but I did not work out the six hours a day that he was working out. So (laughs) you can imagine pretty fast. I gained about 90 pounds, uh, probably got up to about 250. Uh, and you know, like you don't really realize it until you start buying extra, extra large t-shirts and you're like, Oh, okay. 
kind of hits you all changed. of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I kind of reached this point where it was like, okay, what am I doing with the rest of my life? Do I, I wanted to get back in shape. Maybe if I start learning about nutrition, I'll get interested in getting back in shape. Uh, and so it all kind of came together and really started out with just, hey, let's start eating healthy. Let's eat more vegetables and let's start working out. Let's start working out again. And I honestly, I, I just started to do it by running like half a mile a day, three quarters of a mile a day. And I would just do it every single day for like three or four months. Um, and it, it helped me lose a lot of weight. And it was really uh, inspiring. It was the first time I actually was consistent with a running program. And I found that I actually really liked it. So kind of stuck with it up through half marathon, marathon distance. And, you know, you finish the marathon, you're like, okay, well, that was great. But what's next? Right. And, and for me, ultra running was next. It was like, whoa, what is this sport? This sounds even stupider. <laughs> now, why did you, you said you didn't have a background or, or any kind of positive experiences with running when you were younger. Why did you, when you were starting to get back in shape, choose running as opposed to going back to the pool? Was it just availability and, and ease of use as a college student or was there something else? Um, I, I think the fact that I was a poor college student, running is really cheap. Sure. Like, hey, I had to buy some running shoes and that was it. Uh, but also just getting back in the pool after being a competitive swimmer and you see your times now and you go, Oh my gosh, what happened? So it was like this totally new sport where there's tons of room for improvement. And right. I think that was really exciting. Right. Right. Yeah. Not having to compete with your younger self is I can yeah. see being certainly attractive. Did you, did the, which came first, the, the running or the weight loss or the dieting, or was it all kind of at the same time it came on together? It, it all kind of happened together. Certainly, like the longer distance running didn't happen until I had lost a significant amount of weight again. Um, just because, the, you know, the, it takes a long time to both build your endurance base and to lose that much weight. Right, right. And did you have an interest in nutritional science before this happened? Were you already thinking about a career in that, or were you? Did you have a, a an academic interest in it before you started dieting and losing weight, or was that something that came later? No, really. I was actually studying to be a dentist. Really? And uh, yeah, I, I realized, wow, I don't like looking at people's mouths all day, but I really <laughs> like biology. And so nutrition, I mean, it is applied biology. It's right. applied biochemistry. And it's like one of those things that you don't really value until you start to see it in action. And for me, that was that was losing weight was seeing it in action. And I thought that was pretty awesome and wanted to learn more. And then you went on and got your PhD. Were you also at Michigan State for your doctorate? Yeah, I did my doctorate work at Michigan State looking at how different diets could influence immune function. So I uh, really dove into the metabolic signaling pathways that are involved in the development of certain immune cells. And don't want to go too far into that because, uh, like you were saying, that is the weeds. Yeah, for sure. We'll get into that a little bit. Uh, but, <laughs> okay. but yeah, you're going you're gonna to lose me, let alone uh, those of us out there who you know don't have the same kind of scientific background. So, But we'll get there a little bit toward, towards, uh, towards later on. So... Let's talk a little bit about some some different aspects towards approaching nutrition for ultra endurance athletes, at least to start with, and then I think we'll get onto a little bit more into a little bit more specifics uh, as we as we progress through that. There sure. are there are myriad different ways of going about preparing for long distance ultra endurance events from a nutritional standpoint, and you know, there is, 
there's all kinds of information out there and, and all kind and every I feel like every approach has you can name four or five, you know, high level ultra runners or high level athletes that are following a specific approach, be it, you know, uh, vegan or gluten free or uh, low carb, high fat, which we're going to talk more about, obviously, um, or, you know, just straight omnivore or whatever. And, yeah. and fruitarian. Yeah, fruitarian. Exactly. And there's a there's, you know, varying degrees of evidence and, and both both true, you know, scientific evidence and anecdotal evidence. And it gets really confusing to me. The more I look at it, I, I feel like the more the, the, the single take home message for me is is like as long as you're paying attention to what you're doing from a nutritional standpoint and, you know, making conscious decisions about what you're eating, how much you're eating, when you're eating, uh, as it relates to your performance as an athlete, to me, that's 90% of the battle, I feel like. And the specifics mm -hmm. of what diet you're on uh, are actually secondary to just having a plan and sticking to a plan and, and having some intentionality about your nutrition. Tell me I'm wrong. No, no, I, I completely agree. And I, I find that a lot of people are either it's like you have to follow this one paradigm and everyone else is wrong. Uh, or, you know, and I, I'm actually more of the person who would say, uh, I, I think a lot of them have evidence behind them and I recommend people figure out what's going to work best for them, what they're going to adhere to the best right. and then figure out how to do that correctly. Right. I, I, I feel like exactly whatever, whatever works for you. And, and, you know, in terms of works for you, that's not just, uh, what works for you from a performance standpoint it it's also what what you can maintain what fits your lifestyle what is a diet yeah. that, that when you start it like you mentioned fruitarianism i i had a, a very you know fun quote-unquote experience with fruitarianism a few years back after listening to a, a podcast with mike arnstein yeah. where i decided oh this is the greatest thing ever and i i lasted about three days i mean it's not something that i was able to envision even doing for a long period of time and it was you know in retrospect looking at that it was silly to even kind of attempt something where you know you're not going to be able to be consistent with it and i, I yeah, feel like adherence is huge right that that's that's kind of the main thing i, I mean if it's just going to be you know it could be the greatest diet in the world the greatest nutrition plan in the world and it could have all the scientific backing behind it but if it's not something that you're going to be able to be consistent with and 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 maintain over time, then it's it's just not going to be for you, regardless of how you know biomechanically it might work. I am on the exact same page. Okay, good. So let's talk a little bit about some other or some some of these various approaches. You stick you at least from what I am aware of, and I, I uh, feel a little bit silly almost about this because I didn't want this to be basically just a low carb, high fat discussion. And I, I was kind of thinking that we would have a little bit more of a debate, but basically <laughs> we, are, <laughs> we are both low carb, high fat disciples. So okay. before we get into low carb, high fat, let's talk a little bit about some other approaches such as talk a little bit about uh, maybe fruitarianism, maybe veganism and some maybe pluses and minuses for people in terms of lifestyle and or performance for folks who are going to adhere to a diet like that. Do you see, sure. you, can you give me some general principles that might apply? Yeah, you know, you know I, I see those as different variations on a high carbohydrate approach, which to, to me, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that high carb 
is really, really beneficial, especially up through the marathon 50 K distance. Mm-hmm. Um, though that seems to, you know, there are different ways of, of getting high carb, but essentially you're getting anywhere from 60 to 70% of your calories from carbohydrates, maybe even higher on a fruitarian diet. Right. Um, and for people who really have great, uh, biomechanical efficiency, who are super efficient runners, who don't burn as many calories when they are running, who don't have a lot of stomach issues, um, those diets can be really, really great. And I'm really curious to see in the next, I don't know, five, 10, 15 years, if we start to look at different genetic variations on people, and maybe there are people who are really programmed to do better on high carb versus high fat. Hmm. Um, but, but I, I think those are both just good examples of, of what we do call a, a high carbohydrate diet. And again, it, it just comes down to, you know, if, if you've got a good stomach and you can eat carbs all day long when you're racing, then I think a high carbohydrate approach could be appropriate for you. Right. Um, but for me, I've had stomach issues at certain races and like once that happens and I'm not taking in calories, I have to tap into my fat stores. And if I'm not as trained at it as I would like to be, it can really slow down my race. Right, right. It, that's an interesting point that you brought up about how certain individuals might have better sensitivity or, or worse sensitivity for carbohydrate versus fat at varying intensities. Is there research out there yet uh, looking at maybe genetic markers or genetic predisposition to um, susceptibility to various diets? Uh, Not as far as I'm aware of, at least from a performance standpoint. There's been a little bit of research done on whether or not people do better on uh, high-carb or high-fat diets for weight loss. And right now, the research, unfortunately, is not clear. The one study looked like it was going to provide some answers, and then it kind of came out as a wash. But I, I would say part of it was because the adherence to the uh, high carb diet wasn't very good, and the adherence to the high fat diet wasn't very good. So right. it's really hard to tell when when you start to get those those variables. Um, and you kind of asked about you know the pluses and minuses to some of these approaches. And when it comes to things like like fruitarianism or veganism, you know a lot of people are concerned. Oh, there's not enough protein in the diet, and uh, you know I think we kind of overhype protein as as runners as Agreed, athletes. Yes. Um, 60 grams of protein is probably enough for most people, especially some of the lighter runners, maybe 80, 100 grams of protein a day. But most Americans are consuming so much protein. It, it's really kind of uh, a wash when you when you start to talk about it in the scheme of, of things in the standard American diet. Right, right. Now, let's talk a little bit about low-carb, high-fat, because I, I find, like I said, I, I'm, I'm a... I don't want to say a disciple and make it sound like a, I'm a crazy person, but I, I adhere to that diet for the most part, uh, especially in training and racing. And uh, I know that you do as well. So, and and I, I do find that the science, both theoretical and you know what has been applied so far, to be really fascinating. And I, I, I always like talking about it with people who have experience with it. For you, let's start. Why low carb, high fat? Was that again just what you could? envision yourself when you were starting out on your kind of dietary journey? Was that just what you could envision yourself sticking with long term? And that's why you went that way? Did you have some prior experience with it? Or was it more of a scientific question that that this you felt like this provided an answer to when you were first starting out? Or did you settle on this after trying other things? Yeah, you know, I'm actually one of the people who I'd say I settled on this after trying some other things. Um, I started off as as your traditional high carb marathon runner. Mm-hmm. 
um, and then transitioned into ultras and was uh, fairly successful with the high carb approach for ultra running until I kind of got to that hundred mile distance um, and started, you know, just the hundred miles is so long. You're out there for so, so long. Glycogen is not going to be enough. People started asking, well, are you carb loading before your hundred miler? And I thought, well, it doesn't really do anything for me because it's not nearly enough carbohydrate to store right. to run a hundred miles. So it's fat. Like you know, that was kind of the thing that, that switched over was when I started to do hundreds as opposed to fifties and below. Right. Okay. So you, you were not doing low carb for a weight loss perspective when you first started on your kind of weight loss journey. I think I was, but it wasn't uh, an intentional, I'm going to do low carb for uh, exercise at all. It was just like, oh, I know I'm not supposed to eat starches and sugars. And, you know, I'd heard of the Atkins diet and actually I work for Atkins Nutritionals now. So um, it was definitely something that I was aware of and, and just kind of started to play around with. But once I started getting into the exercise, I started to reintroduce carbohydrates because I thought that was absolutely crucial for performance. There's uh, a lot of mythology out there about how we have to have carbs to be able to exercise. Right. And uh, so I started to do that and it was fairly effective. But then I started reading all the research by Steve Finney and Jeff Volick and thought, huh, there's an alternative view here and, and maybe it's worth considering. Yeah. Finney and Volick's book, the I think it's called The Art of uh, low carbohydrate performance, the art, yeah, the science. art and science. Yeah. Yep. That was, that was kind of a, an eye opener for me as well when I first started looking into this. And, and I, I kind of came for, to it uh, almost from a similar path of, you know, trying out a couple of different things. Although I, I never, you know, we talk about sustainability and intentionality and I, I was never kind of, um, systematic enough about my diet and my eating, even when I was competing at a high level when I was younger uh, to really say that one way or another worked or didn't work for me. But, you know, as I got older and, and into the longer distances and, you know, I got to the point where all of a sudden I couldn't just eat, you know, four or five slices of pizza a night and drink a couple of beers and still, you know, maintain a, a healthy r- racing weight. I did have to start, you know, looking into some certain things. And that was kind of one of the things that appealed to me about it was a, the sustainability aspect of it and something that I could see myself doing long term, but then also, um, reading that book and some of the, the science and the theory behind what we're talking about was really interesting. So let's talk a little bit for people who may not be familiar, and I don't want to belabor this because maybe a lot of people do know, but let's talk a little bit about the science, both theoretical and applied, about a low-carb diet for uh, ultra-endurance athletes. Why does it work as opposed to for, like you said, uh, shorter endurance or, or, or other athletes who are engaged in shorter duration events who might be a little bit more carb dependent? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the primary thing it comes down to is that the initial thinking was that at a certain exercise intensity, you could no longer metabolize large portions of fat because fat requires more oxygen to produce energy than, than the similar energy produced from carbohydrates. So your body starts to switch over to a, a higher carb. Uh, it's called your respiratory quotient. You're essentially burning more carbohydrates at higher intensities. Right. I always call it the respiratory exchange ratio. Yeah. And so you start to see that, that as people get into the 
70% of VO2 max. They're really predominantly metabolizing carbohydrates. And so that led to a lot of researchers to conclude that, well, then we need to be carb loading and, and be carb heavy for people who are going to be exercising for a long time at these, uh, at these, these intensities. So, you know, that, that really kind of put a, a nail in the coffin, at least at the time, on this idea that we could be really good fat adapted endurance athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but some will kind of cross between the theoretical then into the practical. Some of the, the research that Jeff Volick has done recently is showing that people who train routinely on low carbohydrate diets actually improve their ability to metabolize fat at higher exercise intensities. So kind of showing that, yes, that there's a standard amount of, of carbohydrate that or standard intensity that's more carbohydrate dependent, but you can actually switch that over to make it more fat dependent if you train your body to do that. Right, right. And then uh, not just being able to metabolize uh, fat efficiently at higher intensity than you otherwise would, but also if you're continuing to exercise at lower intensities for long periods of time, you're able to efficiently uh, kind of tap into your, your body's natural fat stores, uh, which are obviously much, much uh, more vast than those of carbohydrate, and therefore you're less dependent on exogenous sources of nutrition during a long event. Yeah, I mean, I, I always use the example. People look at me and they, they think I'm pretty thin, and I'm like, well, okay, let's say I'm 10% body fat, I'm 150 pounds. That's that's 15 pounds of fat. If you imagine each each pound of fat has 3,500 calories in it, I mean, we're looking at tens of thousands of calories, you know, stored up ready to use, as opposed to the 2,000 calories of of liver glycogen and muscle glycogen I might have stored up. So really, just kind of that uh, their eyes always open up when you tell them that, and you're like, that's why, you know, being able to tap into these fat stores makes you a remarkable athlete when you're going for 20 plus hours. Right. Right. Now, two concerns, I guess, or possible downsides that some uh, people have brought up and, and maybe some of the research has borne out to this approach is one, like you said, you're, you're kind of able to, when, once you're fat adapted, you're kind of able to shift that kind of curve of the, the respiratory quotient to the right a little bit so that you're able to metabolize fat at a higher efficiency than if you were non-fat adapted. However, there's some uh, research, I think, that suggests that the energy cost of w- when you're relying on fat and when you're oxidizing fat at that higher intensity, the energy cost is, is going to be higher than if you were uh, burning carbohydrate. And therefore, your running economy may actually be lower for a given relative intensity when you are running fat adapted versus uh, just on a, a normal high carbohydrate diet. Is that, mm-hmm. is that accurate? Do we, do we have to worry about that increased energy cost and that decreased running economy if we are kind of in a fat-adapted state? Yeah, you know, I, I have seen the, that research. I think that came from, from Linda Burke. And uh, one of the, the comments I had on that was that she, I believe she only put her race walkers on that diet for about six weeks, on a ketogenic diet for about six weeks. Mm-hmm. And most of the evidence suggests that you probably need to do it for about six months to really gain full adaptation. That's when some of the, the changes in blood chemistry start to normalize fully. And a lot of the studies that seem to demonstrate ketogenic diets aren't very good for endurance athletes 
really just don't use it very long. I mean, I've seen very long adaptation phase, I've seen four days and they published a negative study on it. And you're like, yeah, it was four days. Four days. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, minimum, you're, you're saying to see benefits. And, and from my personal experience, I would say about a month minimum of adaptation before I'm feeling like I'm even back to normal, let alone yeah. getting getting any real benefit out of it. Yeah. And that's the problem with a lot. I mean, this, you know, this is not uh, unique to uh, low carb, high fat research or nutritional research in general, but just, you know, problems in terms of study design and and compliance, like you said, with uh, when you're when you're examining nutrition and diets, problems with compliance, problems with study design in terms of, right, how long are you going to allow people to adapt? And, and then, you know, when you're trying to study the effects of something like this, where we're really targeting people who are exercising for several hours or more at a time before you're expecting to really see any benefits, that's a hard study to design. I mean, it's just hard. It's hard to get a control group that's going to run on a treadmill for three or four hours, right? I mean, that's, that's why I think a lot of these, a lot of this research is kind of still in its infancy and still limited in terms of what it can tell us. Yeah, I mean, the, the best studies on this are done in, in metabolic chambers and uh, getting someone to stay in a eight by eight room for six months while consuming a specific diet. <laughs> uh, good luck with that. And that's just an end of one. And you're gonna have to get, you know, 20 people to have a, a sufficient study size. And it's going to be hugely expensive. And so it's just it's very much like you said, in its infancy. So a lot of times I, I'm falling back to the, as a scientist, I hate to say this, but falling back to the N of one anecdotal type experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I think that we can still learn a lot from that and generate some good hypotheses. Right. For sure. Uh, but, uh, obviously, like you say, that's not science and for every, right. For every, um, successful low carb athlete, you can find a successful vegan athlete or, or, you know, fruitarian or, or what have you. So it's, it's, it is hard to draw conclusions from that, but it is, you know, interesting to see what different people do and, and how you can, you know, kind of take some aspects of it and apply it to yourself. You just have to obviously use caution when doing something like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, one, one thing I always point out to people is you've been following a high carb lifestyle for your entire life. So if you're going to switch over to a low carb, high fat metabolism, you have to give yourself a while to adapt. Right. Like expecting to adapt overnight is, is kind of unrealistic if you've been eating this way for 30 years. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Let's talk briefly about some other issues with low carb, high fat, maybe for non ultra endurance athletes and maybe the general population as a whole, the field in which this approach has taken off is, is definitely you know, for the most part, at least uh, in the mainstream from an athletic standpoint among people such as ourselves, people who are exercising for long periods of time, again, because it is, you know, the, the highest degree of benefit is shown for uh, events that last for a long time at a relatively low intensity, because again, you can, you can burn this fat efficiently and, and tap into these, these kind of ingrown uh, stores of, of fat. Mm-hmm. What about using this approach in marathoners, sub-marathoners, you know, mid-distance runners and uh, athletes in non-endurance sports, team sports, and that sort of thing? Are there benefits yeah. and are there downsides to this kind of approach? Well, um, I'm going to start with the low-hanging fruit there, which I, I would say is team sports. Okay. And I think there's actually some really interesting stuff being done 
by some MLS teams looking at how the ketogenic diet can uh, be beneficial for, for their teams. And I can't remember exactly who I saw present on this, but they were showing that they were tracking all of their player data and the amount of time the players are is, uh, running around and, and like distance ran in the soccer games and showed um, that, that it wasn't negatively impacting the distance ran. Um, so, you know, they're, they're seeing that it's not necessarily having a negative impact. They weren't able to really show any clear benefit either, though. Mm-hmm. So, you know, right now, I think it's one of those things that um, some people are starting to experiment with, but they're not quite sure uh, how it's going to play out. But, you know, we, get, we have to do that if we're going to uh, see how the science is going to advance, is, is give it a try. Right. Um, right. For people who are doing some of those half marathon, 5K, uh, marathon type stuff, you know, I think that comes down to more, are you really going to be a performance-driven athlete? Um, if you are really performance-driven, um, I, I think that high carb is definitely approach to consider. Right. Uh, I think that it's probably if you if you're really able to run that distance purely on glycogen, mm-hmm. um, then then I would strongly encourage people to try that first. Right. And if they find that they're running into a lot of bonking and and those sorts of issues, then that's time to maybe try a different approach. <laughs> right. Um, but I, I think right now the research is pretty strong favoring high carb for those high intensity. Uh, we'd say medium, medium distance endurance activities. Right. Okay. And that's, that would be kind of my, you know, looking from the outside in as a, just a more of an interested observer, that would be kind of be my perspective on it as well is, is right. That that's occurring at a higher intensity. You're, you're going to, you know, over the course of a half marathon to a marathon, you're going to run through your glycogen stores, but maybe only barely. And if you can get by on a gel or two or something like that, without upsetting your stomach, you're going to get the benefits of, being able to efficiently use those glycogen stores and, and that exogenous carbohydrate. And that's probably going to be your best bet if you can, you know, maintain that intensity level for that period of time. Yeah. You know, there, there's some other interesting research that would say that, uh, a, a low carbohydrate, high fat approach may cause less oxidative damage. So, you know, there's pros and cons to everything. If, right. if you're trying to run successive marathons and do them at really high levels, then, you know, maybe you try uh, something that won't make you quite as sore. Uh, but if you're really just going for the goal race, then you're kind of, you don't really care about, about the repercussions, then, you know, dump as much high octane fuel into the fire as you can. Right, right. Um, how about in terms of just general population and the general lifestyle, there's been concern and, and some concerning research regarding the kind of long-term effects of a uh, high-fat diet in terms of uh, cancer risk, particularly for GI cancers and that sort of thing. What is your perspective on that? Is that research um, reliable, concerning, still in its infancy? Yeah, I'm a big skeptic of epidemiological research, uh, especially like cross-sectional cohort studies where they're just looking retrospectively at a population and saying, oh, we had, we, these people consume more of this and we saw an increase in this, you know, disease X, Y, or Z. Um, there's, there's so many limitations to that kind of research that right. I don't think strong conclusions should be applied. When, when I was originally taught the scientific method, it was that epidemiology should be used to generate hypotheses and those hypotheses should be tested in cell culture and then in animal models and then finally in randomized control trials. And so, you know, I think that that's frequently overlooked in our current 
dietary guidelines paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it comes down to the fact that also, you know, you can consume what is, could be considered a high fat, low carb approach and still be eating a ton of junk. The same can be said for a vegan approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really, you know, like, let's start with what we know is good. Let's make sure people are eating enough vegetables, enough, enough of these fiber rich, nutrient dense, low starch carbohydrates. And then let's start to introduce the healthy fats and adequate protein. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think there is a way to truly pull that population out of study data from like an epidemiological standpoint. So until I start to see a randomized control trial that shows all these risk factors going up, uh, I, I'm going to be very skeptical of epidemiology research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that makes sense. The The flip side of that, or I guess, I don't want to say the downside, but the problem with eliminating the, the epidemiolog- epidemiological approach is, like we were talking about before, compliance and data collection for long-term prospective studies uh, for a general population in terms of, you know, looking at nutrition over a long period of time and then outcomes is very, very difficult to do. And, you know, it, it's just going to limit the kind of data. And and this is, you know, not a unique problem to looking at ketogenic diets or anything like that. In terms of any dietary research, that's why we're constantly learning new things and hearing new reports come out <laughs> because, you know, over the past hundred years, we're, we're not that much closer to determining, you know, what's, what's the best, quote unquote, the best diet for longevity or health or anything like that than we were a hundred years ago. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there are, there are some tenants that we have kind of settled on that you need to have low glycemic foods, you need to eat a lot of vegetables. But beyond that, uh, I don't think there's a lot of conclusive research. Right, right. Okay. I want to talk about one more thing, a couple more things. I want to talk a little bit just specifically about how you maybe periodize your approach um, for specific events and that sort of thing. Before we get into that, I had a couple of specific questions that I wanted to kind of address with you. One is there's, you know, this idea of kind of targeted carb-depleted workouts to achieve some of the same benefits of, of a ketogenic approach. So rather than necessarily adhering to a full ketogenic diet over a long period of time and, and kind of honing that fat oxidative process, mm-hmm. sticking to a more, let's say, omnivorous diet, but doing some specific workouts in a relatively carb-depleted state to kind of bring in some of these same adaptations and benefits. What are your uh, feelings on that? What does the research show for that sort of thing? You know, I, I have to say I have a little bit of a limited view of research on that, but my my general feeling was that those are more designed to enhance ability to store glycogen as opposed to really promote a efficient fat metabolism. Mm. So, you know, I think that it definitely has a, a place and a benefit. Um, you're still using glycogen, you know, no matter what type of diet you're following. So definitely beneficial for everybody. Just I'm not sure it's going to have the magnitude of effect that a, a true ketogenic approach would have. Right, right. I was reading recently the uh, the IAAF, the uh, governing body of, of track and field and athletics uh, internationally, just I think just a couple of weeks ago came out with a consensus statement on uh, nutrition for athletes competing in track and field and distance events. And um, they did they did address briefly, at least in, in there, the kind of benefits and limitations of a, a 
low carb, high fat approach. And, and, you know, it wasn't quite as dismissive uh, of it as I had feared that that they might be. They did kind of bring up the idea of, I guess, a a increased energy cost or a a decreased uh, running economy at higher intensities, uh, and therefore said it should be, you know, that this approach they recommend should be limited to folks competing in events lasting for more than four hours and and with other specific kind of recommendations. But I I was a little bit heartened by their, I I guess, openness to (laughs) to the idea. Did did you take anything away from that kind of position statement? Yeah, you know, I I would say you're actually starting to see a little bit more, I, I don't know if I'd say acceptance, I'd say maybe grudging acceptance that that low carb may be a beneficial option. And and I think that's a lot of what people just say is that, hey, look, this might be worth considering as an option. Um, the American Diabetic Association recently classified low-carbohydrate diets as a form of medical nutritional therapy. Low-carbohydrate diets are being looked at to be considered for part of the 2020-2025 dietary guidelines. I mean, there, there's, there's a little bit of, of growing acceptance, and a lot of it is just being driven by the fact that there's some really sound science behind it. Mm-hmm. So... How do you how do you argue with the sound science? Right, right. One other question I wanted to ask you, and and uh, I, I, you know, don't want this to become a commercial for Atkins or anything, <laughs> uh, I'm, unless you want to send me a whole bunch of free Atkins products. In which case, sure, let's do that. But I, I do once in a while. I, I like some of those, like the the energy bars, you know, just as a, a good snack because they're kind of filling and obviously low carb and everything else. But the the one kind of thing that I I don't want to say worry about, but that gives me a little bit of pause with them is the sugar alcohols and and these kind of um, carbohydrate, uh, synthetic carbohydrate replacements. Am I kind of uh, on on safe ground in assuming that these are not metabolized in the same way as regular sugars and regular carbohydrates would be? Yeah, I mean, it depends. Every sugar alcohol is metabolized a little bit differently. Some are absorbed and fully excreted. Uh, some, for example, uh, glycerin is metabolized just like the glycerol backbone on your triacylglycerol. So um, it is providing energy for some basal nu- gluconeogenesis, so like really low-level glucose production. Okay. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to spike your blood sugar, causing the subsequent insulin release, causing the suppression of free fatty acid metabolism right. Right. like typical high glycemic carbohydrates would. Okay, cool. Cool. Let's talk before we let you go about, and again, I, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on this because we really can go down the rabbit hole of, of how people use these kind of things uh, in, on a specific way. But let's talk a little bit about how you kind of periodize your dietary approach surrounding workouts and races and, and what you use for those things. Are, I know some ketogenic athletes like Zach Bitter use carbohydrates kind of selectively in training for maybe target workouts, longer runs or higher intensity runs where they want to have a specific performance benefit for that workout. Do you do that or do you maintain a a more general ketogenic approach throughout your training cycles? Yeah, no, that's a great great question and something I've kind of had to play around with a little bit for myself. I, I definitely do a slight periodization. So um, the grams of carbohydrate definitely go up as as my intensity or as my overall training load goes up. So mm-hmm. um, I'll be consuming probably anywhere from sixty to a hundred grams a day uh, when I'm 
training pretty rigorously, which is usually about 20 hours a week for me. Um, that's and, a lot. Wow. 20 hours a week. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty big load. So my carb intake is still pretty low relative to the amount of, of exercise, which I think is a big caveat to a lot of it. So I always kind of talk about things in percentages to people. So it's usually about five to 10% of calories, even if it might seem like it's more, uh, carbohydrate than would be typically recommended for a ketogenic diet. Right. Um, and I will increase it a little bit as I, if I know I've got some intense training runs coming up with training partners, if I know I've been really pushing it. I know I'm really burning a lot of calories. Uh, I'll make sure I throw a few extra carbs in there, but if I know I'm going to go for a couple of relaxed runs or some really long days in the mountains where intensity really isn't even a consideration, I'll actually cut back to go pretty strictly ketogenic and then, um, maybe even do the workout fasted. Okay. Okay. And then what about for races? Are you going in basically carb depleted or do you like to, I I know again, talking to Zach, I know he likes to do really kind of a a carbo load the night before, uh, to make sure that, you know, whatever glycogen he might've been missing from, you know, recent training is repleted and kind of topped off. And then he'll start the race in a relatively carb fasted state. Whereas, you know, breakfast that morning is basically zero carbs and, and, He'll kind of add carbs in slowly during the race as intensity increases. What, what is your approach around racing and do you use carbs while you're racing as well? Yeah, so I, I remember reading some research showing that, you know, it takes about 24 hours for liver glycogen levels to be depleted, which is one of the requirements to really get into that ketogenic state. So I finish, if it's a Saturday race, I'll have finish off my carbohydrates on Thursday and make sure that I feel like my my muscle glycogen is up and that, you know, I've kind of finished that off. And then that Friday before is going to be pretty strict low carb. And then the race morning is also very, very low carb. Mm -hmm. And then once the race starts, um, I'm a little bit like when, during my high carb days, I was three gels an hour, every hour for as long as I could stomach it. Um, and now I've kind of backed it off to one every hour for the first little first, maybe hour, two hours. And then, I would say as needed mm-hmm. for the rest of the race. And that usually comes down to between one and two an hour after that. Mm-hmm. And are you just gels? Or are you, are you eating other foods as well? Um, it, it really varies on what's available at the aid stations, what my cravings are. I'm not, right. I, I really have, I would love to be able to use like some of the super starches and those sorts of things, but, uh, I'm just not good with drink mixes and stuff everywhere. So, Gels are so convenient for me. I can keep track really well of how, of how many calories I've eaten and everything. So I've mostly just stick with gels. But I've been doing rice balls also recently, and I measure out very carefully how much calories are in my rice. And I add a little bit of vinegar, which might decrease the glycemic index a little bit to mm-hmm. slow down digestion. Uh, so that, you know, I'm experimenting with some other foods, but really I, I find it's just whatever I can keep track of <laughs> so that I make sure that there's a consistent fuel supply coming in and not too much or too little. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you're talking about gels, just to be uh, clear, you're, you're using basically regular gels with a normal amount of carbohydrate. You're not using some of these newer, uh, like low carb gels basically. Yeah. I haven't tried the low carb gels. They um, taste terrible. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a lot of them use MCTs and right, right. I, MCTs wreck my stomach. If I put MCTs in my coffee, I notice it. Um, 
I'm really afraid of trying MCTs while I'm racing. Right. You know, that they have a certain, they have a certain bowel tolerance. We'll say, (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Okay. Jonathan, before we let you go, I need to play a little game that I play with all of my guests. Now you are too young to remember the radio show called desert Island discs, where people went to a theoretical desert Island with a bunch of CDs and, and had to pick out their favorite songs. But, um, we're going to play a, a, a game called Desert Island Picks, where I'm going to send you to a desert island for a year, and you're going to have to tell me what you're bringing on that desert island. You're allowed to bring one book, one album, one food, and one beer. What are you bringing along to a desert island for a year? Okay, let's see. Uh, my book would probably be Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. Okay, I know um, the name Ken Follett. I don't know the book. It's a historical fiction about the building of a cathedral, but it's a lot more exciting than it sounds. <laughs> okay. Um, one food. I think I'm going to go with peanut butter. Okay. Good one. Good choice. It's either peanut butter or sour cream. So my favorite foods are condiments. <laughs> uh, one beer is going to be a Bell's Two-Hearted IPA. Nice. I'm from Michigan originally. Bell's is uh, one of the best Michigan beers and Two-Hearted. We just started getting it in Colorado, and I'm so happy. Uh, that's a deli- I love that drink. That's delicious. And, and one album. One album. Um, boy, what could I listen to forever? Yeah. I think I'm going to say uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young album. Or maybe Led Zeppelin number three. Zeppelin three. Yeah. That's not everyone's first choice, but a great <laughs> but a great album. Great album. Awesome. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on. This uh I hope was really helpful. This was really helpful for me and and I think it's going to be really helpful for the listeners as well in terms of kind of teasing some of this stuff out and and getting some kind of specifics and cutting through a little bit of the noise out there about all these different uh nutritional issues. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And, and like I said, I really think it's it's just about finding out what's going to work best for for individuals. You know, we didn't talk much about run, about running uh, <laughs> while, while we were on, on what what do you got coming up? I saw um, you have a hundred coming up this summer, right? Yeah, I'm I'm into Cascade Crest this summer, so that's that's the big A race. Excellent. Um, we'll see if I do any other racing. Sometimes I just like to have a relaxed uh, summer and just train as at my own leisure and get ready for that big race. Awesome. Awesome. And if people want to follow you, are you on Twitter or Instagram or anything like that? I am. I haven't been very active recently, but uh, run to run on Instagram. Great. Jonathan, thank you so much. Thank you to everybody out there for joining us tonight in the pain cave. And until next time, keep putting one foot in front of the other. been faded like a good old pair of jeans Rusty like a proud old car that's drove a little too far and seen too much rain But long ago as a child I looked back the night sky is wild wonderment Then ride the bus and feel upset to think of all the years I'd have to go through there I was still I was still